All right, you guys, let's do Freud. Let's do Freud relatively fast. For those of you that want to think, continue thinking about Freud past these two weeks that we've set aside, reach out to me, please. I've got lots more to share with you. We can be in conversation one-on-one. -on -one. I have a whole lot of thoughts, but I'm gonna keep this tight this week um, because I have a lot of asks for you also in this week. And again, just to start, I'm Don Panconian. This is Myth, Ritual, and Symbolism. Today is October 11th. Wow, these months fly by. I want to start by using Yo-Yo, um, your text in your problem posing. I think you put into words what is the most common response to Freud in the US right now. And so I'm going to borrow that as an example. Yo-Yo writes, I had trouble articulating my questions this week. The only one that kept popping up was, what is with the obsession with sex and the Oedipus-type themes? I find it so strange and a little off-putting that those are interwoven throughout Freud's theories and explanations for things. As I was reading, I kept going, what? Why? To a lot of Freud's reasoning. I'm not sure how to unpack my questions. I think that's how most people, even without ever having read a word of Freud, respond to Freud in the US in particular right now. Um, in other countries, that's different. I'm recording this in Argentina right now, and Argentina was just realizing as I was rereading Menand, and Menand says, look, Hitler pushed a psychoanalysis out of Europe, and you had so many people migrating to London and to New York that you have these new hotbeds of psychoanalytic thinking, right? Vienna no longer is the hotbed. Germany, these Eastern European countries, um, they're Nazi. And so psychoanalysis is Jewish, and psychoanalysis flees Europe with the psychoanalysts. But something that Manand, I think, could have written, and maybe people aren't paying attention to, is there were also massive waves of migration out of Europe before and during World War II to places like Mexico and Argentina. And Argentina is renowned globally for its psychoanalysis. Psychoanalysis is um, perhaps even the predominant form of psychology in this country. I need to go do this research, but this is a country where you get down on the ground and you know immediately just by being in conversation with people that people still have faith in, if I can say it that way, psychoanalysis. Um, I feel like this is maybe what it felt like in the United States in the 1950s and early 1960s before psychoanalysis started to, to give way to other types of psychological treatment. Um, and I don't think that in saying that, I want to be really clear here and say to you, I don't think that other forms of psychology are necessarily better. Um, I'm going to get in so much trouble for saying that, and I'm telling you that as an anthropologist, just to be clear, we have kind of love-hate relationships with psychologists and psychology. Um, but what I want to say to you here, something that's really important to keep in mind about why Freud was so important um, I'm going to read you this straight from Manant. Why, why did Freud get to be so big? And in that Why Freud Survives article that we ended with for last week, Manand wrote, Amazingly, Americans, a people stereotypically allergic to abstract systems, found this model of the mind irresistible. Let me pause for one second and say to you, let's make clear what is the psychoanalytic model of the mind. The way I think I can explain to you that makes this most memorable is, it's gonna feel like a tangent, but it's not. Freud really, really, really liked archeology, span right? He was fascinated by archeology span and often he used it as a metaphor for psychoanalysis. And so Freud would say, 
that just like an archaeologist digs into the earth and can dig down layer by layer by layer and the deeper you get kind of the further into the past you get right so you have these um, no longer visible in the present artifacts that are down deep um, to be pulled up by these scholars and then analyzed and you have this understanding of, of what happened there in the past. Um, Freud thought that psychoanalysis was that, but for the mind. You were doing, in effect, a kind of an archaeology of the mind. You could dig deeper and deeper and deeper and the artifacts are the symbols in our dreams or in our slips of the tongue. Um, and, and so you could get to these you could get to new layers of knowledge and, and to new understandings of, of mankind and, and how we are and how our mind functions by this kind of talk therapy digging. Think, think of talk therapy as the shovel that allows you to get further and further and further down into the earth. Um, and think of the symbols that come out in that talking or in that recounting of your dreams, if you're doing that specifically, as the artifacts that are there buried in the earth. Um, so that's the model of the mind. And Menand again is saying, amazingly, Americans, people stereotypically allergic to abstract systems, found this model of the mind irresistible. Now I'm going to continue with the Menand quote. Many scholars have tried to explain why, and there are no doubt multiple reasons, but the explanation offered by the anthropologist Tanya Lerman is simple. Alternative theories were worse. And then, quoting Lerman, Freud's theories were like a flashlight in a candle factory. Think about that. Like, what is that image, right? You're in a candle factory, right? You've got somebody's figured out how to produce candles and they shed light on things, but they just shed little bits of light and then the wax drips all over the place and then they go out and the light flickers and, and there's not the same clarity. There's not the same ability to see that the flashlight provides. And so I think that's a really good metaphor too. And what I want you to stop and think about um, all of you, because I think this is important, is Freud is coming up with these ideas. Freud comes to the U.S. to give his lectures in, I should have looked this up before I did this, 1916 Freud lecture, New York. Let me tell you when it was. Um, 1912. So, so he publishes the lectures he delivered in New York in 1912. This is the only time he ever went to the U.S. They come out in a book later um, in 1916. And he, um, so all of that is to say, in, in and around this time period and earlier, because obviously these are psychoanalysis is something that Freud is um, theorizing well before he gets to the US too. This is 120-ish years ago that this is how Freud is saying to the world, we need to think about the mind in a new way. Let's try talk therapy. Let's see if talk therapy can lead us to new understandings of how we hide things from ourselves and lay that out alongside of what other scientists of the mind were doing at the time. I mean, this is not that far away from phrenology, for example. You have people filling craniums with bird seeds, for example, to decide the brain capacity of people that belong to different quote-unquote races. You've got people measuring bumps on heads to decide how advanced, how complex, how intelligent someone is going to be, right? You've got, I mean, the history of science of the mind and of the brain is so riddled with problems. 
um, you've got these theories are, are holding their, their ground throughout the 19th century into the end of the 19th century. And so on the top of that, on the not quite heels of that, you've got Freud saying, let's talk to people. Let's have them tell us what they're dreaming. Let's have them tell us what they're thinking about. Let's have them describe for us their fears. You know, let them lay on the couch. Also, lay that out next to shock therapy, for example. Lay that out next to handcuffing patients or, or kind of metal bracketing patients to gurneys in asylums. Lay that out, period, alongside of asylums. And so what you get is, as much as it's so easy to criticize Freud in the present, it's also really important to recognize that psychotherapy, or pardon, psychoanalysis, and Freud, no doubt, saved thousands, hundreds of thousands, I don't know how many people, from the forms of psychological treatment that were um, much worse, right? I mean, given the option between being institutionalized in an asylum, strapped to a bed, treated with shock therapy, or, um, and let's think of psychoanalysis as a most early, and this is Manand writes through this, being a form of um, psychological treatment or therapy that allowed patients to leave asylums and initially to be in hospitals, but then later on, not even to have to be in hospitals. This is a kind of, you can go over to your psychologist's house and lay on the couch and talk, right? If the office is in the house um, and, and talk through things. This is so different from Again, shock therapy, for example. And so I think we would be remiss not to stop and notice that and, and admit that that's at least partly responsible for the success of Freud um, in the past and into the present. This is still a kind of a, this is a therapy that fits people's daily lives. It's a therapy that's flexible, that's human-centered. I mean, think about our obsession with human-centered design. This is human-centered psychology. This isn't, I'm going to shock you and that's going to fix your paranoia or your anxiety. This is, talk to me, talk to me. Together, we're going to recognize the symbols in your dream. Together, we're going to figure out what they mean. Um, the problem with Freud is, even while Freud writes that this is something you have to do in conversation with the patient, um, Freud still writes with great confidence, but symbols are universal, and so even while the Freud, the patient has a voice, this symbol means X, and this symbol means Y, and this symbol means Z, and that's universal, right? That's something that's problematic with Freud. But let's set that aside and just juxtapose the form of treatment to earlier forms of treatment. And now also pause, let's juxtapose this form of treatment, which again, persists into the present. There are people that are very adamant. Um, Freudians and or psychoanalysts and increasingly they call themselves the treatment isn't called psychoanalysis it is called psychodynamics I believe if that's right um, it's a kind of a nod to like this comes out of psychoanalysis but it's more flexible and it's evolved uh, so there are this is still a viable form of psychological treatment um, but let's juxtapose it to other forms of treatment. How else do we treat anxiety in the present? We medicate, we sedate, we, and this is me here again as an anthropologist, not even as a medical anthropologist, and so I'm not going to critique, I'm not in position to critique medical responses to um, all of what is considered mental illness in the present right now, and I'm not going to critique medication at all. 
but I am going to say that there's pretty strong evidence that we're over-reliant on medication, right? And so there's pretty, um, I think I can say to you with confidence that in 120 years, I wouldn't be surprised if a room full of students are reading, as we are reading Freud here, somebody today saying you need to give this medicine to this and you need this medicine for this and you need this medicine for this and they're all sitting there saying holy shit how did big pharma get so big right like how could people possibly believe this just how i suspect that that's going to be the conversation in the room in 120 years and there does this feel like an impassioned defense of freud um i also suspect that psychoanalysis will have proven to be less dangerous than things like over-medicating in addition to shock therapy. And so all of that is my way of saying to you, let's try to take Freud seriously. Let's try to see if there's anything useful for us. And now moving away from just thinking about Freud and my defense of Freud to thinking about Freud and myth, let's also pause. This is our week for first, um, you can use the myth that you presented at the end of last week in your archival dig, or you can use a myth presented by anyone else. Um, pull out the symbols in that myth, write them down in a list, and then give us an analysis, but not as you. You're, you as analyst, you're being Freud this week, or you're being a psychoanalyst this week. If you really can't tolerate Freud, become another psychoanalyst. But the goal in that first part of this weekly assignment is for us just to see what happens when we start to think into the signs and symbols of a myth. And I want us to try to use Freud's understandings of what symbols meant universally and even if we decide at the end you know what there's no way that cavern and all open space in every context and for every people throughout time necessarily meant uterus for example maybe we'll decide that maybe we will decide that water doesn't mean birth universally and we have a problem with that but let's for this week go with what freud said let's apply these two myths and let's see what we're allowed to see. What kinds of epiphanies do we arrive at? Um, I do this every year. And in the beginning, I was always really clear to say to students, like, I don't believe this at all. I'm just doing it as an exercise. I don't want you to think that my psychoanalysis is like really my truths and these are my conclusions. I was really careful to distance myself because I was sharing this content with students. Um, and I don't do that anymore. I think what I've realized is what I arrive at when I use Freud to analyze, whether it's literature, whether it's fairy tale, right, whether it's a myth, is I arrive at new potential understandings that may or may not be right, but they radically shape how I think about a narrative. Um, and that's interesting because if in some cases I get it right, then I'll, all of a sudden Freud and psychoanalysis have led me to those new understandings, right? Um, something that I wouldn't have been able to do without them. So I want you guys here this week to play at this too. I've left you an example, my own psychoanalysis of Genesis chapter six, I believe it is, wickedness in the world it is the story of Noah and the flood. I like going there, it's so rich in detail. Um, and, and in, there are just so many symbols to be unpacked. And so you have that as a template. And again, I'm asking you to be Freud, not to be yourself or to be another psychoanalyst. After that, we're gonna move pretty quickly into just thinking about surrealism. Let's think about what this meant for the arts and for artists. 
And one of you asked, and I'm going to go straight there, Eli, you say, and so this isn't specifically about the arts, this is about art criticism, but you wrote, I'm curious how Freudian literary criticism slips into art criticism. Has Freudian thinking become a part of how we criticize art? How? If not, then why do we use psychoanalysis to critique literature, but not other forms of art? That's a really important question. I know exactly the paragraph in Manand that I think prompted you to ask this. And I'm going to read that paragraph because I think the answer is there. Um, Manand's writing about um, Frederick Crewe, and he uses Frederick Crewe. Manand, just to be clear, wrote that last article, Why Freud Survives, that we read in this class, just to, to get a sense of, okay, like even when so much of what Freud theorized in the present doesn't hold up, like everybody still knows Freud. Why is that? Like we don't know the guy that invented phrenology, for example, but we know Freud. Why is that? And um, one of you, I think Bella even wrote, like, I'm so tired of hearing about Freud, which made me laugh because I thought, God, who's even talking about Freud? Like, we kind of know him, but do people still talk about him? Anyways, um, so Manand wrote that article, Why Freud Survives. And he tells us about Frederick Crewe, who is a PhD in literature who gets out of grad school in 1958 and he's kind of bored with what's going on in literature and he finds psychoanalysis and he's really into it. And so he publishes one of the pioneering works of psychoanalytic theory of um, literature. And for the next two decades, he's known as this kind of, he does psychoanalysis of literature, he teaches this in his grad and undergrad classrooms. But what happens is over time, he starts to realize that even while interesting things come out of this kind of analysis, his students are able to arrive at conflicting conclusions, right? And so he's got a room full of students, they're all analyzing the same literary text, or we might be doing this with a myth, for example, and they all arrive at different conclusions. This symbol means this, and this symbol means this, and this symbol means this, so the underlying sort of thrust of this narrative is this, this is what it's really all about, it's all about penis envy, or it's all about Oedipal complexes, or it's all about um, the father and, you know, um, Electra complexes too. It might be the mother and the son, etc. And so um, what's really interesting in the case of Frederick Cruz is that he becomes critical of this theoretical lens that, that he pioneered and made famous in literature and is well known for. So 25 years later in the 1980s, he's publishing this kind of rethinking of psychoanalysis in literature. Is this really valid or is this just fun to play at? Um, that's important to know. And now this, Eli, this is back to how do we get from literary criticism to art criticism? Is anybody doing psychoanalysis in art criticism? And Manand writes, professors in English departments naturally wondered how they might get in on the action. They did not have much trouble finding a way, for it is not a stretch to treat literary texts in the same way that an analyst treats what a patient is saying. Although teachers dislike the term hidden meanings, decoding a subtext or exposing an implicit meaning or ideology is what a lot of academic literary criticism does. Academic critics are therefore always in the market for a theoretical apparatus that can give coherence and consistency to this enterprise, and Freudianism was ideally suited for the task. Decoding and exposing are what psychoanalysis is all about. And so here's where I say to you, Eli, and I say to all of you here, 
To what extent is art criticism about exposing and decoding? To what extent is art criticism about finding quote-unquote hidden meanings, decoding a subtext, or exposing an implicit meaning or ideology? And I would say to you that whenever the project of the art critic seems to be one of those things, um, arguably, that critic, knowingly or not, is being informed by psychoanalysis, right? I mean, this is, again, Freud obsessed with archaeology, who has this idea that we can dig into the brain and find the things we're hiding from ourselves, that pre-Freud, people aren't digging into the brain to find ourselves, our unknowable selves. And this is also something really important that I want to say to you. This is where I usually start when I walk into a classroom live to talk about Freud. Um, think about the self-help industry. Think about what percentage of that self-help industry it depends upon this idea that we have things about ourselves that we cannot know. We have to read the right books, we have to study ourselves, we have to, maybe we have to analyze our dreams, that's pretty directly linked to psychoanalysis, but there are even more subtle, superficial links. Um, I like to say to students, and I don't know if I have this entirely right, but this is how I imagine the pre-Freud world. You wake up in that world and you just kind of are you. You're not like, you have your conscious self, but then buried deep inside of you, you have this subconscious self where, you know, you, there are all of these pieces that, that inform your emotional well-being or not, that, you know, your traumas kind of live there and the things you hide from yourself live there. And these things that, these things that kind of maintain your angst and, and your discomforts and et cetera, et cetera, they, they live in your subconscious. And, and then along comes archaeologist, psychologist Freud, who says, let's dig in there, let's get to those and let's unpack them so you can free yourself from them for, in one sense. Um, that, I mean, imagine the world of not having, of not needing that self-help industry. That's what I want to say. If pre-Freud, you are who you are, you don't need self-help books. You don't need to overthink who you are. You're probably not even especially interested in thinking about identity and what is your identity and whether people take you seriously or not for the identity that you know is yours. Uh, you kind of just are who you are. And I don't know. Um, I think that's so interesting to think into because it seems so far away from where we are in the present. And that leaves me thinking, Freud, who we love to hate, is largely responsible not only for all of the billions of dollars that are made every year in the self-help sector, but he's largely responsible for all of the time we each invest in trying to discover ourselves. Without Freud, I don't even know how much free time we'd have. Maybe a lot more, right? Um, so there, or I, if we're trying to avoid understanding ourselves too, um, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know where I'm headed. I think, I just, I want to laugh and say like, even that, like even Freud got us here. Freud, whether we're trying to better understand ourselves or whether we're trying to avoid better knowing ourselves, Freud got us to this place where we have the sense that it's possible to better know ourselves than we already do. And that's something that's really powerful and, and people don't talk about. So I'm saying all of these things to you here, hoping that, you know, when you hear Freud, instead of just being annoyed all the time and thinking, God, he was so obsessed with sex and this was so machista, which it was. Um, some of the earliest, best critics of Freud were the 
um, 20th century feminists from around the world, Simone de Beauvoir, you've got also Betty Friedan, you've got um, others. But so, again, my defense of Freud isn't an outright, wholehearted, 100% defense of Freud. It's a, hey, let's stop and, and see what's, what's interesting. And, and to what extent Freud shapes how we understand ourselves in the present, in 2022, ourselves being all of us here in this course right now, um, in ways that we don't even think about. I think that's interesting. And now, some things I want to say that are really important, and then we'll close out. Abriana and also Emily and even Ryan, you guys had really important, this is where I thought I'd start this lecture, I decided I'd end here instead. You're asking really important questions that are just like, how? How is it possible that Freud could believe that symbols are universal? Like, doesn't anybody who's just paying attention and asking questions and, and looking across time and across space and, and, I don't know, seeing the different narratives of different people, can't you see? that people read different meanings into different symbols. Anybody that's doing ethnography and participant observation, can't you figure out um, that these aren't universal? Um, and what's interesting about Freud's psychoanalysis is that it was, I think, just flexible enough that um, this is part of the problem. This is part of what makes it a pseudoscience now. It was deductive rather than inductive. And I've said this to you once more in this class, once before early, Inductive is you start with this, you start with the data on the ground. You've got everything right, and maybe you're talking to a bunch of people and you have all their dreams and you can see all the symbols across their dreams. And then you're looking for patterns in their dreaming and you're looking for patterns in their symbols. And maybe you find people all over the world and across time who in recounting their dreams are recounting the same kinds of symbols and, and they really are the same exact kinds of symbols or really similar so that you can arrive at some sort of conclusion that says, look, people who've lived this experience dream of snakes, for example. Um, that's inductive science. And if you can do that and you have a big enough caseload and other scientists are doing this too over and over and over again, this is how the scientific method works and they're arriving at the exact same conclusions, people who've lived X experience dream of snakes, then you've got an inductive science and that's a pretty reliable theory until it isn't, until people start to find exceptions or something else. Um, Freud wasn't doing that. Freud was doing what is deductive science. He was really starting with the overall conclusion and then looking for ways to make the overall conclusion fit the dreams. And so he had this overall conclusion that had to do with how um, maybe sex-centric we were or the prominence of sex in, in our thinking and, and, and in all that we were repressing and maybe also in our traumas and also in our wishes and our wishing and our wish fulfillment. Um, and so because he started with this taken for granted, like these stages of adulthood are similar to these sexual stages of childhood and, and they're prominent and, and we're hiding them from ourselves. Then when he went into dreams, for example, or later when other people took Freud into literature or took Freud into myths, what they were finding were symbols that they could use to prove these um, the foci on sex, the, the, the sort of sex centrism of all of humanity. And that's the problem with Freud, 
it's never going to be reliable as a science because of that. He started with the conclusions, in a sense, the Oedipal complex, the Electra complex, the wish fulfillment as something that's universal and, and often something we're, we're hiding from ourselves, the slips of the tongue as being spaces, gaps between words, where gaps between sort of meaning making, where we're accidentally saying to the world the things we want to hide from the world. Freud started with an assumption that these things happened. He didn't prove that they happened. And then what he was able to do was to go into, again, dreams. Um, and other people were able to take these into narratives. Freud also just used these. It didn't only have to be dream analysis, though that's what I think he's most famous for today. It was all forms of talk therapy. Um, and, and, and Freud found, found the evidence for his conclusions. That's not science. Um, it's pseudoscience. Okay, good. Um, but so that's Abriana. How? How can he believe symbols are universal? Because he had this good idea, and how cool would it be if they were universal? You know what it would allow us to do? It would allow us to understand the human mind in all of its complexity, the whole world, over and throughout time. That's amazing. And so let's pause here and say, at the very least, what we can do is respect Freud's goals. Like, that's a really lofty goal. And again, I said this last week, but I think it's important to remember, this is a moment in time where people are still saying like the black brain is this and the brown brain is this and the white brain is bigger and holds more seeds and is smarter and is more complex and all of these things. And Freud isn't doing that. Freud's saying the human mind is universal. And so even while we think he's crazy and a little bit of a crank, he's also kind of subtly anti-racist, right? Maybe even not so subtly. And that's something else that people don't pay attention to. Um, and I'm not going to say that he is all of the time because I don't know. Um, but Freud also is living in Germany until way later than he should have been as a Jewish scientist. And that's important too. So he's in effect at this time. It's easy to dismiss him now as this white man with all of this social power. But he wasn't that. He was living in Europe at a time in which people who were Jewish were extremely marginalized. Um, and people were being killed already um, and being put into concentration camps, etc. Um, they were being taken into custody even before Freud left. And so Freud's Latin life wasn't as easy, I think, as maybe we like to think it could have been there. I want to say that. Emily, you're similar to Abriana's thinking. You say, look, I understand Freud wants to state that people who've been sexually harassed as a child developed personal issues as an adult from it. And need help, but why on God's green earth did he assume that all kids secretly wanted something sexual from their parents? Also, was this Freud's argument as well for all dreams being based somehow on sexual fantasies? Um, again, that's the sort of like, okay, Freud had these conclusions and they seem a little bit preposterous right now, right? Let's, let's admit that. Um, but why they made sense to Freud is because he could work his way back and he could find data after the fact that supported his theories. And again, this is why we do science the other way around. You start with the data and you get to the conclusions. You don't start with the conclusions and you get to the data. And the last thing I want to say here, which is also really important, and Ryan, you point this out, but I'm going to say it in my own words, is there is something tremendously Eurocentric about all of this thinking and even more specifically about um, understandings of the dream and what counts as a dream and when we dream and how we dream. Um, you, Ryan, made me think of a really important right from 1979, so totally dated the discourses old, but the essays in this book were, were and continue to be really important. W.E.H. Stanner, an anthropologist who studies Aboriginal peoples in Australia, or did for many decades, 
wrote a, a book that he titled White Man Got No Dreaming, which is all about um, dreaming from an Aboriginal point of view. And, and dreaming in this case, it's a literal translation of a word that doesn't mean dreaming the way we mean dreaming. It's not like you go to bed and it's what happens when you're in bed um, and it's a narrative, etc. Dreaming is a kind of a pre-time but still present in the present time where everything that is important happened and continues to happen and it's kind of the space of it's not an afterworld, it's not a, it's, it's so much more complex than that. And so um, for those of you who are interested in this sort of thing, uh, let me know and I'll send you that. If this class was a year long, we'd read W.E.H. Stanner for sure. We'd read parts of, we'd read at least the section on dreaming and white man got no dreaming. Because what it, again, it, it get, brings us back to the problem with language and the problem, the power of language and um, the fact that we can spend so much time assuming that all humans do this thing that it's called dreaming it happens in particular contexts at particular moments and in those moments and contexts they're betraying themselves um that's a problem okay but there that's maybe really what i want to say i want to come back to one final passage that i pulled from manand and i pulled this because joseph you write really simply, and I liked the simplicity of this, sometimes a couple of cases when you guys are writing me really simple questions and pushing back and telling me where'd you get that question from, give me some context, help me to understand it better. Um, I need that from you because I need to know you're getting into the readings. But um, this question worked for me, Joseph, you write, is psychoanalysis basically the connection between words and emotions? And I thought I'd read you a passage from Manand, Why Freud Survives, because I think it starts to answer that. Manand wrote, the dynamic approach is based on the cardinal Freudian principle that the sources of our feelings are hidden from us, that what we say about them when we walk into the therapist's office cannot be what is really going on. What is really going on are things that we are denying or repressing or sublimating or projecting onto the therapist by the mechanism of transference, and the goal of therapy is to bring those things to light. Um, so you could say, in a sense, yeah, psychoanalysis is basically about the connection of words to em and emotions. It's really about how we hide our emotions beneath our words. And that's why it's talk therapy. It's the sense is that these words are going to betray us. Our, our emotions, no matter how good we are at hiding them, are going to come out. And they're going to come out in our dreams, or they're going to come out in our slips of the tongue, etc. So I thought that was just a really nice place to leave you guys. What is psychoanalysis? Most basically that. It's kind of an archaeology of narratives, an archaeology of our words, an archaeology of, um, of text, of, of orality, with the end goal of uncovering human emotions, whether it's individual human emotions or shared, collective, societal human emotions. I hope you guys have a really good week and we are in touch. Cheers and ciao. Thank you for being here always.